Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination, Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. The following is three short tales, because one day I did not feel like blogging one whole long subject all by itself. 1. Our first tale takes place on a merchant vessel off the coast of Honduras in 1717. This was an unsettling time to be a sailor in the Caribbean. The War of the Spanish Succession from 1701 to 1714 was a great time to be a privateer, but the resolution of the conflict, Philip V was allowed to ascend to the throne that ceded numerous territories to Britain, Savoy and Austria, left many said privateers out of work. Large numbers of British and American pirates flooded into the Caribbean, making easy pickings of the merchant ships sailing through the region. Picture this, the crew of a merchant vessel is completely blindsided by pirates. In the early hours of morning, a boarding party sidled up to them in a sloop. Before the crew could react, all hellfire and thunder broke loose as large, heavily bearded men threw the sailors about like ragdolls, brandished swords in their faces, and corralled the crew onto the quarterdeck. The crew are then forced onto their knees, then poked and prodded. Look of a noggin on that one, I imagine one pirate commenting. He'd do you right, Pete. I get the image of Pete passing comment that he must be a smart man, big-headed people always are, while he runs a length of twine around the man's forehead. I picture another passing one of the men over, Nah, far too threadbare. I do have standards, you know. The crew begged the pirates for mercy. Please, spare us. Take anything you wish. We just want to make it home to our loved ones. The particularly terrifying pirate steps forward, demanding to know who's the captain. This pirate is Benjamin Hornigold, an up-and-coming buccaneer with five ships and 350 men under his command. Among his men, one Edward Teach, known to history as Blackbeard. Why, sir, I am. Please, sir, as a good Christian, I beg you, spare our lives. The captain responded meekly. Well, captain, what size hat do you wear? The night before, Hornigold and his crew were out carousing. A good time was had by all. The drinks flowed and the men partied into the wee small hours, when it struck them as a smart thing to do to throw one's hat into the air. On a moving ship, with a strong enough wind to send the hat scattering, from there the hats all sank to the bottom of Davy Jones's locker. As daylight came, and the men worried that sailing on bareheaded would lead to disaster, a plan was hatched to steal all the hats from a merchant ship spotted in the distance. The pirates took the hats they needed and nothing else. They returned to their own ship and let the merchant ship return to their business. 2. Though really not big on big history, I've heard it said a student once asked the anthropologist Margaret Mead what she considered the first sign of civilization. Her answer? A broken femur which is healed. Look, in my time, I've read a total of three books on big history, little specific to anthropology. I'm in no way qualified to offer an opinion, but I think this makes a great anecdote to open this next short tale. The Lombards were a tribe of Germanic people who conquered much of Italy from 568 AD till they were conquered themselves in 774 AD by the Frankish king Charlemagne. They are of indeterminate origin, their own 8th century historians stating they were from southern Scandinavia, but Roman historians in the 1st century BC count them as amongst the Suebi, a group which originated in the Elbe River region in modern Germany and the Czech Republic. Their name lives on in the northern Italian region of Lombardy. 
Over two seasons, 1985 to 1986, and 1991 to 1992, a group of archaeologists came across, then excavated a Lombard graveyard in Veneto, northern Italy. They uncovered 164 bodies buried between the 6th and 8th centuries AD. One is of particular interest to our next tale. The man in tomb T. US 380 is a man of mystery. Examination of his remains suggests he was a warrior, not uncommon for a Lombard male. At the time of his death, he would have been somewhere between 40 and 50 years of age. For his time and place in history, a reasonably good age to make it to. His grave is not filled with earthly treasures, or his favourite horse, or a team of slaves to serve him in the afterlife. By all accounts, TUS380 was just an average Joe, and always but one. Mr. 380 was missing his right hand. In place of a missing limb, it appears he had a knife attached to the stump. No one knows exactly how Mr. 380 lost his limb. It looks like it was removed in one heavy blow. Though it could have been done in battle, or it could have been an amputation of a limb too badly damaged to heal itself. There is a possibility Mr. 380 had a hand cut off as punishment for theft. This wasn't unheard of among the Lombards. The stump shows signs of a callus built up, suggesting a probably lever device used to attach the blade. Signs of wear on the man's teeth and shoulder suggest a daily routine of using his teeth and spare hand to fasten the prosthesis with laces. In medieval times, people generally didn't survive amputations. If the blood loss didn't kill you, the post-amputation infection would most likely finish the job. Margaret Mead's rationale at the top of his tale. If a group takes care of its damaged members, cares for them, nurses them back to health, then that is a civilized society. There's no question the Lombards were a civilization, but knowing their tough-as-nails warrior reputation, Hardcore History's Dan Carlin, for one, described them as like an outlaw biker gang. It is remarkable to think of a group of people who handled the tourniquet, who sewed him back together, and who nursed Mr. 380 through the inevitable days of normally deadly fevers, till he was back on his feet again. 3. November 1983, a wave of madness broke out across America, leading to a number of riots and physical altercations. The tale most often told took place in the Zaya department store in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. A thousand adults pushed and punched, pulled hair and tussled with one another. Boxes flew across the store, shelves were sent sprawling over, weapons may have been used on one another. Store manager William Shigo, surrounded by the melee, grabbed a baseball bat, climbed atop a counter, and yelled at the horde to leave immediately. His request fell upon deaf ears as the assembled continued to beat the living daylights out of one another, hoping to defend their prized item. This scene played out in toy shops all around the US that year. Of course opportunists swooped in, buying stock and then selling on the black market for huge markups. Some parents drove hundreds of miles looking for this elusive item. Others resorted to bribery. Zaya resorted to issuing tickets to lucky parents, then serving the lucky ones out back, but this hardly solved the problem. What was the cause of all this kerfuffle? This thing. Blog readers will see the picture. A Cabbage Patch Kid doll. Legend has it the Cabbage Patch Kids started their lives as doll babies, developed by Martha Nelson Thomas in Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas was a folk artist specialising in doll making. 
She developed her doll babies sometime in the early 1970s and would exhibit them at local art and crafts fairs in the area. Though running a business, she appears to have had no intention of ever selling in large numbers. In 1976, she met a then 21-year-old Xavier Roberts at a fair. Roberts, an aspiring artist living in Georgia, convinced Thomas to let him sell some of her dolls in his state for a cut of the profits. The two would do business until 1978 when they had a falling out. It was at this point it was alleged Roberts stole Thomas's idea and began working towards scaling up the business. Martha would begin a protracted legal battle with Xavier in 1979. In 1982, Robert signed a contract with toy company Colco to produce the rebranded Cabbage Patch Kits. While the agreement was to mass-produce the dolls, they had two things working against them. One, production was always going to be a little laborious. No two dolls were alike, from their appearance to the packaging which contained a personalised name for each of the dolls. And two, this angle contributed to the dolls becoming the most desired toy of Christmas 1983. Martha Nelson Thomas would settle her $1 million lawsuit against Xavier Roberts in 1984, out of court, for an undisclosed sum. In the meantime, Xavier Roberts continued to rake in much more money than that. There was now a nine-month waiting list for one of the dolls, and the price had skyrocketed from $30 to $150 per doll. Thanks for listening, this has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes are written by me, Simone Mutlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog at www.historyandimagination.com We'd love it if you followed us on the social media, links in the liner notes. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review on the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back in two weeks for more Tales of History and Imagination. Thank you.